Welcome to this latest Hollywell Trust Conversations podcast, the first of 2024. And welcome as ever to my co-host, Paul Gosling. Paul, how's the form? It's as good as ever. Hi, Gerard. That's great, Paul. So, Paul, today we are discussing the a hugely controversial issue, um, the legacy bill, as we used to call it. But now that it's been passed through and it's now law, the correct title is the Northern Ireland Troubles Legacy and Reconciliation Act 2023. Can you... Explain to us, Paul, briefly what the Act says. Yes, uh, thanks, Gerard. The, the Act established the Independent Commission for Reconciliation and Information Recovery. Now, while this body, which uh, is abbreviated to ICRIR or ICRA, investigates past events from the Troubles, the Act limits criminal investigations, legal proceedings, inquests and police complaints rising from that period. It also extends the prisoner release scheme that was initially enacted in 1998. In addition, the legislation aims to provide, and I, I quote here from the Act's guidance, for experiences to be recorded and preserved and for events to be studied and memorialized. Okay, so I think it's well understood or well known that the Act was passed against widespread opposition, um, including from all five of the main political parties here. Uh, there was also opposition within the House of Commons and many human rights and victims groups. Can you summarise what the main opposition was? And there was a lot of it. Well, absolutely. And, and we dealt with some of this in the podcast last May, uh, where we heard from the Northern Ireland Human Rights Chief Commissioner, Alison Kilpatrick, and she expressed her serious concern about the human rights implications of the Act, as did in the same podcast, Daniel Holder of the Committee on the Administration of Justice and also human rights professor at Queen's, Colin Harvey. Now, groups representing troubles victims have been strongly against the legislation, as has Amnesty International. There's also been international opposition from some politicians in the United States and, of course, from the Irish government quite recently. Now, concerns have also been raised by the Council of Europe's Commissioner for Human Rights and the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights. Now, that's quite a package, isn't it? Obviously, we can't list the objections of all these groups, but it is essentially that the legislation allows perpetrators to get away with their crimes, and critics allege that the targeted beneficiaries of this are former soldiers. Now, of course, the British government argues that given the passage of time, it's no longer realistic to, convictions, to get convictions in most cases. Now, the Irish government has launched an international interstate case against the British government, which is highly unusual. It argues, the Irish government argues, that the Legacy Act reneges on previous commitments entered into by the UK government through the Stormont House Agreement. In addition, that the legislation is not victim-centred, that it is not consistent with obligations under the European Convention on Human Rights, which is a cornerstone of the Good Friday Agreement, and also that it is widely opposed within Northern Ireland and that it allows for the granting of immunity and in addition, that it closes down existing police investigations and civil actions. Now, Ireland argues that ICRA investigations are not a substitute for properly resourced police investigations. Now, my personal interpretation is that in addition to all that, that the Irish government is also displaying an irritation with the British government that it has acted unilaterally and that there was an expectation arising from the Good Friday Agreement that it wouldn't act unilaterally on controversial matters regarding Northern Ireland. Mm, okay, so I think at this point we have to say that Hollywell Trust itself um, has been involved in this conversation and 
we were a conduit, if you like, between ministers or representatives and the Northern Ireland office and groups here, including victims groups. Um, and our concerns, Paul, re reflect those that you've already mentioned, in particular that the British government is acting alone on this and appears not to have listened to any of those who'd be directly affected by this act. Um, and I think it's fair to say that as an organisation, we'd prefer a model that is accepted by all relevant stakeholders and is fully human rights compliant or where there's at least no question about human rights. Recently, I mean, the Victims Commissioner has been saying stuff and, and the Victims mm. Commissioner in Jeffers has resigned, leaving the post vacant. Now, he's not specified that he's doing so over this legislation, but he was another strong critic of the legislation and he has now that, uh, stepped down. Okay, and so one of the more vocal organisations against the, the legislation is a group that's it's based in Derry, it's Patrick Centre, and you've spoken with Sarah Dory from the organisation. Yeah, that's that's correct, Gerard. Uh, we can hear now from Sarah, who begins, in fact, by talking about the census recently launched impunity project, which provides the stories of some of those families who lost relatives from violence in the Troubles. Uh, now, I think it's worth stressing that a core point of the campaign is to stress that some families have had to struggle twice over with their bereavement, uh, first time from the loss of a loved family member, but then a second time by having to fight to clear their name. Uh, as we know, uh, sitting in Derry, as we know from Bloody Sunday, the army has in instances falsely justified the killing of an innocent person by wrongly claiming that they were either carrying a nail bomb or otherwise were a paramilitary member. Uh, when in fact they were simply an innocent person in the wrong place at the wrong time. And that has left the family having to clear the name of their relative while they're grieving. Anyway, let's listen now to Sarah Duddy. Uh, she was talking just before the Irish government launched its interstate case against the UK government. Well, the Impunity Project involves um, 23 video interviews with families who have been bereaved as a result of direct state violence. So all the families have had a loved one killed by either the British Army or the RUC during the conflict. We have families from right across the north. Um, we have families whose loved ones were killed in the 1960s, 70s, 80s and 90s. And I suppose the, the motivation behind that project was to capture their unique stories, obviously, of who their loved one was, the circumstances of the death, but also the long sort of campaign for truth, justice, or accountability. Um, in our experience, we would work with a lot of families who've, who've lost loved ones during the conflict. Um, we work with families whose loved ones were killed by Republicans, loyalists, and state violence. And there's unique challenges for those families who loved ones had been killed by the army, for example, um, whereby in those cases, the initial narrative was, you know, we've the army would put out a statement and say, we've killed a nail bomber, we've killed a gunman, this was a justified shooting. Um, and then the, the burden falls on the family, I suppose, to prove the innocence of their loved one. Um, and there's been quite a lot of work done by Kieran McAvoy and others at Queen's sort of looking at looking at the circumstances of state British Army deaths, the flawed investigations, particularly in the early 1970s and the, the situation whereby, you know, the narrative of the, the British 
government would be, you know, there's only 10% of people were killed by the army and the vast majority of those were lawful. But whenever you actually dig down into the detail, you know, we see that just classing them all as being lawful killings is, is misleading because, as I said, there was flawed investigations at the time and there's been a number of inquiries or inquests in more recent years that have challenged successfully in a judicial process um, the the actual circumstances of what happened. So if you look at Bloody Sunday or Bala Murphy or individual cases such as like Kathleen Thompson here in Derry, you know, where after a vigorous examination of evidence, it's quite clear that those shootings that were deemed lawful at the time were actually unlawful. Um, so as I said, th the project focuses on those experiences. Um, and we felt it was really important to capture these testimonies directly from these families um, who've had these experiences. Because, as you know, at the minute, the British government has, has brought in a legacy act that is changing how the, the past is dealt with okay. and opportunities for families to bring an inquest or see a prosecution, they're, they're being completely just removed from the equation. And there's a real concern that there's a lot of cases there that need proper examination and that's not going to happen. So yeah. the so, families so will words, be left in a situation. Yeah. So in other words, Sarah, the, the, the project is dealing with two issues, one of which is that the, the killers have immunity for their actions, impunity for their actions rather. But secondly, that yeah. people's reputations, dead people's reputations have been destroyed in the process. But as you say, yeah. that takes us on to the question about what the Legacy Act has done. What's happening at the minute is the, the British government have brought in this Legacy this legacy Act. There's a number of challenges that are going through the courts. There's, there's challenges going through the High Court at the minute. There's a reserve judgment, and that covers, I think, 19 discrete issues in terms of challenging the Act. The, the decision of the High Court will not be the end of it. It will be appealed. It will probably go the whole way to the Supreme Court. And I would imagine there will be, will be challenges in the European Court of Human Rights. There's also a lot of pressure in the Irish government to bring an interstate case. Um, they haven't made a decision yet on whether to do that because, you know, obviously it's a political decision to, to bring your neighbour to the European Court of Human Rights and say you're in violation of your duties. But... We've also got assurances from Keir Starmer in terms of the Labour government's commitment to repealing the legislation should they be successful in the in the next election. Um, so there's there's a lot happening in terms of trying to challenge this act. But alongside that, we know that the Independent Commission for Reconciliation and Information Recovery. Um, which is one of the bodies to be established under the Act, that's going full steam ahead. You know, that they have put in their top tier management and commissioners. There's more commissioners to be appointed, but they've started to, you know, work on operational papers and policy papers and try to engage with different people. Um, so they're, despite different challenges in the courts, they're going ahead with their work with the aim of next year from the 1st of May you know, opening the doors for business. And will you cooperate with them? Will the relatives cooperate with them? No. 
no, and 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 that has been, you know, we we had one meeting with Sir Declan Morgan uh, when he was initially appointed to to the role of commissioner of the of this new body, and that was more like that was even a, a challenge and decision for our, our organisation to take, you know. <sighs> should we engage in this process and we did because of his good work in terms of the legacy and quest five-year plan so we met with him um but we were very clear we outlined our grave grave concerns and we made it clear that we wouldn't be engaging with the commission or and we wouldn't be encouraging any families to engage with it and all the families we work with have said that they wouldn't engage with it um I should say, you know, as well as the victims groups, there's various victims groups that have all opposed the act and opposed the ICRIR. Um, you know, you've you've had the Irish government, the Labour government, as I said, there's the Human Rights Commissioner, um, Alison Kirkpatrick, who have all raised concerns around the commission and also the the impact of the Legacy Act. Um, I think there will be some people will engage with the commission, but that would be from not necessarily having any faith in them delivering, but I've worked with victims and survivors for over a decade and they, a lot of them would engage with, they, they wouldn't close down the door of, of, of just saying, oh, no, I'm not going to engage with something, even if they don't have faith in it, they feel like almost like a, a burden of guilt that they have to engage with whatever's there because there's no alternative. The government has effectively removed all of the all of the alternatives, so they will try it. We feel that it would be very damaging because you know examination of the legislation and how it's going to operate and the lack of independence. There's a number of of reasons why. Um, the end product is not going to deliver for victims and survivors. Now, if it goes to the courts in terms of um, challenge, that's going to take years, isn't it? Um, and equally, yeah. there's going to be a long time before a new act comes into place if, with a new government. So what in the what would you like to see replaced in terms of a better process? Well, there I was thinking about this this morning in preparation for this conversation, and you know there was there was a model there under Stormont House. You know it's it's very frustrating and disappointing that we had we had something there that was acceptable to the vast majority of the parties in the North and victims and survivors. There was concerns, um, but there was a a healthy engagement around making that process work. And then the government, the British government, unilaterally just said, no, we're not going to do this. Um, that was like 2014. It could have been nearly finished. It's worked by now. If we're not going to have Stormont House, the current mechanisms, they are delivering for victims and survivors. The main issue is around properly resourcing them. You know, So we have an inquest, a five-year inquest process. A lot of the families that we work with that are going through those inquest processes, it's frustrating in terms of delays and 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 you know discovery and stuff like that. Those delays fall on the state. You know, um, the same with the police ombudsman's office. You know, we've worked with families who were really pleased with the ombudsman's reports. 
the challenge is that they're massively under-resourced, you know, so the money that's going into the, the ICRIR, if that could be channel, channeled into existing mechanisms, properly resourced with good personnel there, you know, we could get this done. You know, we could get this done. Um, and that's a frustration. Um, and what we see at the minute is this cutoff line of the 1st of May 2024, whereby inquests will stop, prosecutions will stop, police investigations will stop, police ombudsman investigations will stop. So there's a real push to try and get as much of that casework completed by the 1st of May next year. There's a lot of families who've gone through the processes of, you know, for example, getting a complaint accepted by the police ombudsman, which is a really high standard. It has to be grave and exceptional. There has to be prima facie evidence there of police criminality, you know, or convincing the attorney general to open a new inquest. The families have already had to go through these processes to get these new uh, mechanism these mechanisms opened for them and now at the 11th hour that's just going to be snatched away and that's that's it's actually cruel you know it's cruel and it's unfair and it's it's leaving families in a really bad state in a really bad position okay so thanks to sarah dolly for that interview well i found it very interesting very significant that uh, she was making it absolutely clear that the Pat Finucan Centre will not be cooperating with this new independent commission for reconciliation and information recovery, or, or ICRIR, and nor will the victims that they're work that are working with the Pat Finucan Centre. Indeed, um, but ICRA has now opened. I mean, it's uh, it's there, uh, and two key appointments have been made. One of which is Sir Declan Morgan, who was. Uh, the, uh, the Lord Chief Justice of Northern Ireland, he's the Chief Commissioner, and you've got Peter Sheridan, who is Commissioner for Investigations, and, and Peter, of course, Peter Sheridan, he's moved over from the role of Chief Executive of the Peacebuilding Charity Corporation Ireland, and he's also a previous Senior Officer in both the PSNI and before that in the RUC. Now, as you will hear, I asked Peter about whether that background undermines his credibility as an independent investigating officer, and he is very clear that he believes it doesn't. Okay, so let's listen to what Peter Sheridan has to say. Can you explain a bit about the structure of ICRIR? Can, yes, and, and it's good to talk to you again, Paul. Um, I mean, obviously, we're in the early setup phase. The commission was only established in law on the 14th of December. So we're now in the, in the setup phase. So that's building the background of the, if you like, the framework, what, what Seamus Heaney used to talk about, the, the scaffolding. Um, so the law is the scaffolding and we're now building the inners of that. So that includes, you know, what the investigation process will look like, uh, what the findings process will look like, and all of the background work that you would expect um, a commission to have in place, you know, including all our policies around um, equality, um, human rights standards, um, uh, conduct in the organisation, everything you'd expect a, a new organisation to be establishing from the ground up and growing it from the ground up. And and what's the timetable? What, when we when do you expect to be fully operational? So we expect the, to be fully operational at the beginning of summer. From sometime from about the beginning of May, um, we should be beginning to take on cases. Um, not quite 
tied down the date, but around about May time. And what are the objectives? So first of all, to be um, uh, uh, an organisation that's victims focused, that will recover information for victims and survivors who want to know more about it. Secondly, to be um, compliant with um, human rights standards. And, and I suppose thirdly, to uh, recognise the importance of the Good Friday Agreement in all of the work that we do. So now tell me through the, the processes. How, how will people contact you? Who should be contact you? And how will you deal with the, the people who do contact you? What's the process going to be for investigating? Yeah, so um, at the minute, we're, we're, we have ideas that we're consulting with people um, as to what the final uh, look of that might be. But, but I'm happy to give you what we, we believe at the minute will be the case, but it's subject to consultation. We have lots of surveys out with people. But it will be about uh, a family member, a close family member, being able to request from the commission um, of a, somebody who's a bereaved family um, an investigation or request for information about the death of their loved one or uh, their loved one with serious injury. So out of that, we're proposing three stages in that. One will be an engagement stage. So naturally, people come in to see somebody in the commission to build a relationship and to find out more about what is it they want to know, because there, there's a wide variety of difference of what families want to know um, about the death of their loved one. Some people want um, investigations that will lead to uh, court cases. Some people just simply want to know the simplest things. I mean, I recall in the past somebody wanting to, to know what happened, the, the watch that their husband was wearing at the time. That's the only thing they want to know. Um, so there are lots of things that people want to know. So the first part of the, the engagement will be trying to understand what it is for the, the commissioners can do for them. The second will be then as a request to the family of the person who died or suffered serious harm, um, finding more details about, about the last moments of their life of their loved one. Um, you know, whatever that is that we, the, the, somebody who comes into the commission are entitled to ask me as the commissioner for investigations, five, 10, 15, 20 questions that they want answered. And I'm duty bound to try and answer those questions. And the, those requests for information then are based on the uh, answers will be based on the balance of probability. So it's not the legislative standard, but trying to find out more information about their their loved ones. I was involved in a, in a case in, in, in when I was in Cooperation Ireland where the widow simply wanted about four or five questions answered from somebody who's involved in the death of her husband. And the most simplest questions, they weren't questions that somebody who might be um, in the law might understand, but it was simple questions like, were you looking through our windows during the night? Did you follow our kids to the swimming pool? Did you follow them to school? Almost those simple questions, but they had been with that person for 40 years. So trying to find answers to the, those type of questions. The second type of investigation then we would call uh, liability focused, and that would aim to establish all of the circumstances of the death and collect evidence to a standard that could support a criminal prosecution. Um, and as well as trying to any, answer any remaining questions they might have on the edges of all that. Uh, so there may be some limited circumstances where we're able to invest cases, investigate cases and provide um, evidence that to take it to a court standard. Although I have to be honest with people that those cases, as we all know, because of the fragmented way and the, the uh, way that the all of those cases have been examined since the Belfast Good Friday Agreement of cases haven't collapsed. 
piecemeal approach to it, that the, the likelihood of successful prosecutions is vanishingly small. It's not to say there won't be and can't be, uh, but I do want to not, you know, to, to not hide from people that, that trying to find evidence that's 30 and 40 and 50 years old to a today's standard becomes increasingly more difficult. But nevertheless, one of those then there'll be that liability focused investigation trying to discover that. The third one then will be culpability focused. And that'll be again a proactive investigation, following requests from somebody. And the aim will be to establish all of the circumstances of the death or the harmful conduct, as as well to answer any specific questions. Uh, and as well as additional evidence from witnesses and su subject of interest, and, and then to present findings on the balance of probability. So that's a lower standard in the law. So it's not the legal standard of or the, the criminal standard beyond a reasonable doubt, but on the balance of probabilities. But the idea is to recover as much information as possible to share with the families of bereaved. And are the cases, Peter, restricted to where an individual has died? or has gone missing, uh, do you have the capacity to examine other cases where perhaps someone was severely disabled? So, so it's UK-wide legislation. So you know, we have uh, cases in England or Wales or Scotland and, and in Northern Ireland. Obviously, in other jurisdictions, I don't have that power, but I have the powers of a, of a police officer. Um, I have powers that demand information from state agencies or other people. I have powers that allow me to um, find people who don't provide um, the necessary information. So the powers are very wide that the Act gives us. Um, uh, and so there, there, it does provide that opportunity of hopefully helping to victims who've been trying to find out answers to questions for um, 20, 30, 40, 50 years in some cases. But would it be only available to people who are relatives of an individual who's bereaved, who's died? Or would it be also possible where someone, for example, is in a wheelchair, has yeah, no, bullet lodged in them and they want to know who did it? No, yes, a person who, who suffered serious harm, um, it's also open to. And, and how should an individual contact you? What's the mechanism by which they contact you? So, so it will be just direct to the commission, um, and and as we start to build and design the uh, the work, we will be letting people know whether it's through the media, through um, personal to, to allow people to know how they can approach the commission and how that approach can be made. Some people might want to do it confidentially. Some people might be able, want to walk in off the street and 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 ask the questions of us and and want to find out more about it. And so the, the opportunity would be even for people to come in and say, well, tell me how I can access. I suppose the, the crucial difference in this is we can't go out and seek to attract cases. In other words, it's it's not within our gift to decide we're going to investigate this murder or this shooting or this bombing or this serious injury. It, it has to be requested of us and then we follow up on that basis. Okay. Now, the official title of the organisation is the Independent Commission for Reconciliation and Information Recovery. How yes. will you take an approach that ensures that information recovery is not the opposite of reconciliation, that it doesn't actually achieve the opposite? Well, you know, I, I've 
been aware and, and, and watched cases before where um, even in the criminal justice uh, process that we, you know, even though somebody was convicted of an offence, that you end up traumatising people. So one of the things that we have from the very beginning decided is we're going to have a trauma-facing approach, a trauma approach to all of our work. So we've already employed a clin clinical psychologist. So all of our interactions, all of our engagements will be from a trauma perspective because we're very conscious that a lot of these cases that you resurrect for people, that you re-traumatize people. And that has been to the forefront of our of a lot of our thinking um, currently. And so you'll be taking close advice from the clinical psychologist? Absolutely, yes. And, and that team will grow. And, and, and I mean, in every uh, interaction with people, we will be thinking of it you know, from that perspective of how victims and survivors who, to some extent, were traumatized by the initial event, whether the initial killing, the initial murder, whatever it was, but have been continued to be re-traumatized by how that um, event was dealt with ever since by the state, by the police, by investigations, and they've been constantly re-traumatized. So we have been very aware that one of the things we will have to do is to make sure that we're that trauma and trauma approach is front and center with our and our approach to victims and survivors. Thanks, Peter. I mean, a final question, personal one, about how you feel about the role you've been given and how excited you are. And do you feel conflicted given your own history within the RUC in terms of taking on this role? Well, well first of all, I, you know, I, I absolutely understand that some people will, who don't know me and don't know my background and don't know me as an individual when I was in the police will be you know, will will have the perception that how could somebody who is a former police officer have this role? But I would say a number of things to that. Firstly, those who do know me know that I, I act with integrity and it doesn't matter whether somebody is a former police officer, a former soldier or somebody who was the partner of the organisation, I will treat people the same in, in my investigations in it. But secondly, at, at a wider perspective, you know, all of us accepted the Good Friday Agreement as a way forward. And as part of that, was the parity of esteem. So that meant that, you know, me and many others were willing to accept people who are former paramilitaries into government. I was willing to embrace Martin McGuinness being Minister of Education, being Deputy First Minister. And I thought it was absolutely important that people like Jerry Kelly were able to sit on the policing board and pick the next Chief Constable. So all I ask is the same parity of esteem that I, as a police officer, a former police officer who's spent 15 years in peace and reconciliation can uh, apply in an open process and, and compete with lots of other people for that process and be accepted to the job. That's the only thing I asked. If we're going to move this place on, then we can't forever continually stigmatise people and organisations. We either have to allow that to, to, to allow ourselves the ability to move on, knowing that there's no perfect answer to this and been willing to accept a level of imperfection in this. But there has to be difficulties potentially about allegations of collusion, surely. Yes, I, I fully understand that. And, but it doesn't mean that I will be party to those, that I can't do my job properly and individually. Um, as from an, an individual, I stand on my own integrity and this and always have done. Um, and sometimes I, people who ask that question, I wonder, is that from their own thinking that they think that they couldn't be impartial? In that case, uh, 
well, that wasn't doesn't come into my mind. You know, I I, I prosecuted police officers when I was in the police. Um, you know, I, I I don't have any difficulty saying that it doesn't matter what background somebody comes from if they were on the wrong side of the law, they were on the wrong side of the law. Um, so you know, that's that the, the only thing is I can say to people, well, judge me by my actions and judge me by how I respond to people and how I deal with people who come into the commission. And isn't it interesting, Gerard, that, you know, th thanks very much to Peter for doing that. Um, but isn't it very interesting? He's so forthright in asserting that allegations of conflicts of interest arising from his roles, previous roles at the IUC and the PSNI, will not undermine his independence of his new position. Uh, I wonder to what extent that will satisfy victims groups and human rights campaigns. Mm. Now, I think it's also going to be really interesting, Paul, to watch the outcome of the Irish government's interstate application uh, to the European Court of Human Rights. It was officially launched on 17th, or lodged on the 17th of January. Um, Irish government contends that the Legacy Act um, and elements of it contravene five different articles of the European Convention. And I'm pretty sure that the, the British government will argue against that. But it's a shame, I think it has to be said, that the two governments are not, that are the co-guarantors of the Good Friday Agreement are now in this position. And Paul, I don't know about you, but it leaves me wondering how it will affect future work and relationships. Peter Harris and Secretary of State has issued really what was quite a cross response to the Irish government. So, I mean, they're both in a bad place in terms of mutual relationships. Okay. Well, look, that's it for the this latest Hollywell Trust Conversations podcast. Um, please don't forget that we have a whole series of past podcasts available on our Hollywell Trust website, which is hollywelltrust.com. Um, and it, that includes the interview with Human Rights Commissioner Alison Kilpatrick. So thanks as ever to your Community Relations Council for funding the Hollywell Trust Conversations podcast. And that's it now. And it's bye from me and bye from Paul. Thank you.